chapter 4, so I would invite you to take your Bibles and, uh, and find John chapter 4. Uh, I think it, some of us are here by listening and some of us have to see things, uh, but I think the combination, uh, it reinforces to, to hear and to see those words and sometimes to go back and reread it after it's been read, uh, because that's why we're here to hear, to see, to listen to God as He speaks to us. Last Sunday, we covered the account of Jesus' interaction with His disciples. If you remember, uh, He was going through Samaria. He grew weary and tired. They went into the village to buy food. He stopped by the well, and as He was sitting there, uh, a woman came to Him. And you remember a couple of weeks ago the encounter uh, with her. Well, last week we looked at the disciples coming back and finding uh, Jesus sitting there talking to this woman. And uh, they ask him about it and they urge him to eat. And if you remember, what we emphasized was the fact that he told them, I have food that you know not of. Uh, and then he explained what he meant. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to, his, uh, to accomplish his work. We tried to connect that work to the fulfillment of God's promises. We looked at the totality of history as spread out in scriptures, redemptive history, uh, from eternity past to eternity future. And we talked about the promises of God to provide a way that man could be restored to the relationship of worshiper with the object of the worship, face-to-face, -face, an immediate encounter. And that's what we long for, we look forward to, that one day when Christ comes back, we will see Him face-to-face. -face. But to see Him and not shriek back in horror and guilt and condemnation, we need a provision for sin. And that's what we have looked at. That's what Jesus came to do. And we've been talking about that for some time. We also suggested that the conversion of the Samaritan woman and her neighbors was an example of the faithfulness of God to follow through on his promise to Abraham to bless the nations through him. He promised him a great name. He promised him a people. He promised him a land. And he, he made the promise that the nations would be blessed through him and uh, at this time in history, there were two groups of people in the Jewish mind. There were the Jews and everybody else. The Jews or the Gentiles. We use that word, we find it in, uh, especially in the King James Version. And it, the root can simply be translated the nations. So it's the Jewish nation and everyone else. Today, I would like for us to pick up the narrative again, beginning with, with verse 35. So if you have it before you. Uh, be prepared for that. Christ uses the idea of the physical sowing and reaping to point to spiritual sowing and reaping. We said he talked about physical food and spiritual food. Again and again, we'll emphasize the distinction between the spiritual and the physical. They're, they're combined. They're not at odds with each other, but Christ has entered into space and time, took on a physical body, uh, and uh, suffered a lot of things that actually suffered more than we can ever expect to in our lives. So in according with God's purposes, in the text that we looked at, sowers, or we'll look at, sowers and reapers are the ordinary means. God doesn't just, through uh, telepathy or mental issues, just speak to the hearts of men, but He uses the spoken word to draw men and women to himself. Though typically in the physical realm, sowing and reaping the harvest is perhaps spread out by distance and time, uh, the main, in this main narrative that we'll look at today, there are two things that I want us to realize. Because it is actually speaking of harvesting a, a spiritual crop of believers. And so it's an evangelistic, the book of John is all about evangelism. It's the evangelistic book, the proclamation. So we make a distinction even in the author 
of this book, we talk about John the Baptist, and then we talk about John the Evangelist, and of course, John the Apostle. Two points that I would like for us to see if we can think about this morning. Evangelism is a faith-dependent enterprise. Evangelism is a faith-dependent enterprise. If you just take a moment and thought about that, then you can think of all of the other things that people may depend on or think that they need to accomplish evangelism. Also, evangelism is a collective enterprise. Let me say that one more time. Evangelism is a collective enterprise. And I think we see that in our text today. We referenced it last week, but I wanted to drive it home today and maybe apply it to some of the frustration, some of the guilt, some of the angst that we have about evangelism. In chapter, so verse 35 of John 4, 4, we read, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here, is the saying, here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. When I say that evangelism is a faith-dependent enterprise, I mean it is by faith in the Word of God we believe that the fields are widened to harvest. The disciples had to make a decision. Well, first they had to try to understand what he meant. He's using picture language. He's using agrarian language, something that they could turn and perhaps look in seasons of the year and observe the fields that had looked white into harvest. But he's speaking spiritual language, and it can only be understood through the eyes of faith. So that's what I mean. It is a faith dependent. We have to believe. And the question is, do we believe, did the disciples believe, did they understand, do we believe that the fields are white into harvest, that there are people ready to be saved? There are people out there that God has been working with, some have labored before us, and that we can enter into their labors with them as reapers. Throughout our journey through John, we have pointed to the contrast between physical expectation and spiritual expectations. Spiritual temple, a spiritual birth, spiritual <coughs> water, and now a spiritual harvest. I think sometimes we think too narrowly about that harvest. We think specifically about leading someone to Christ or leading them into a point in time of conversion. But I think it's a process of reaping where uh, we join in with others, perhaps it's in teaching a Sunday school class or coaching a ball team or uh, being a, an employer uh, or an employee where you are sharing. And you. the other thing is, when I say it's faith-based, the harvest is faith, we don't ever know. We, we can look and think. I can tell you times where I went on prison ministry or did street work and had people pray the sinner's prayer, but I don't know if they were saved or not. Uh, I don't know that they were harvested at that time. So sometimes the harvest is, goes unseen, and we may be the sower in a particular moment, or we may be the one who says the word that God uses at that moment to, to bring forth the fruit and harvest the fruit. Seeing with the eyes of faith should encourage us with confidence. A confidence in the faithfulness of God and the power of God who enables us to see by faith fields white into harvest. Or perhaps better said, a confidence in the power and the faithfulness of God enables us to believe that the fields are white into harvest, even when we can't discern it or see it. As Christians, we've already experienced faith unto salvation. And a lot of this is what John is talking about. These things have been written that you might believe and believe that you might have eternal life. But we never outgrow faith. 
There's that initial saving faith, but there's a continuation of that faith for our sanctification and actually for our continued salvation. There's never a time that we can just we stop believing. Uh, it won't happen if we've been born by the Spirit of God. So there's a believing unto salvation, and then there's a believing from that point of salvation. In the face of the darkness and unknown of death, Paul encourages believers in 2 Corinthians when he writes, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And he explains why. Now they're facing death, perhaps persecution. Uh, we all face death. But in this, he's encouraging them to walk by faith and not by sight. As I read that, I have to ask myself, is that the way I live my life? Do I live, when it says walk, do I really walk, live by faith? It doesn't say that we see by faith, yet that's true, but it says that we walk. It goes beyond precept to the manner of our life. And that it should apply to everything and every undertaking in our lives. Our family life, our work life, uh, our, our amusement, uh, in every aspect of our life, it's lived by faith and an eye towards eternity. If the consequence of walking by faith is courage, then the fruit of walking by sight is fear. The classic example that we always use is Peter. When Jesus came to the men in the boat walking on the water, he said, bid me come and he said, come. Peter steps out of the boat and he's walking on the water. And then the wind gets up and the winds howl. And uh, Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink. And he has to cry out, Lord, save me. And the Lord reaches down, if you remember from the story, and picks him up. The wind and the waves for us may be the indifference when it comes to evangelism. It may be the perceived indifference or <clears throat> the actual indifference that we encounter when we're trying to share our faith in Christ. The winds and the waves for us might be uh, the express resistance of people. Uh, they may turn their head or give you a look, or they may say something to demonstrate that they really don't want to hear what you say. The winds and the waves for us might be rejection and ridicule. Uh, there may be those who actually uh, vocalize their disdain for what you're trying to do. But anyhow, faith in the power of our God and the promises of God should encourage us. We walk by faith and not by sight. Sight leads us to view the reality of resistance, rejection, and ridicule greater than the reality of the power of God in the proclamation of the gospel. Walking by sight leads us to a sense of failure, guilt, and condemnation. And I'm speaking specifically here of what I've experienced uh, when I uh, have heard sermons on evangelism. I feel like a total failure. Uh, I can't point to a successful encounter. And so if we're to be co-laborers with Christ, as we will see, we joint heirs and co-laborers with him, there's a sense of guilt because I want to do all that I can and should be doing for him. And what is the promise concerning faith? The promise concerning faith is a great reward. And what is that reward? Hebrews tells us, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was found, to, he was found and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now, before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. Then it continues, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So that which pleases God, uh, some people we think uh, the evangelist, the soul winner, the missionary, the preacher, the pastor, the teacher, somewhere we think that this is what pleases God and we feel somewhat inadequate or, or, or underachievers. But what pleases God is faith in His power and His promises. That's what saves us, right? 
Not faith in ourselves and our accomplishments, but our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he uses, Jesus uses this uh, uh, agrarian illustration, and, and perhaps you've experienced this in your garden or uh, some flowers you've planted. If you've ever planted a seed, you know that it takes time to germinate, to grow, and then mature. But what Jesus is illustrating through his actions and through his teaching is that the spiritual realm is not governed by the restraints of the physical realm. <clears throat> it doesn't depend upon time in the same way. God can speak and instantly things come into existence. If there's one thing that evolution depends on, it's time. Lots of time. Lots of time. Lots of time, billions of years and billions of billions of years for these things to transpire. God is not dependent on the physical world, but created it, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Our faith in the harvest must be anchored in the power and the purposes of God. Jesus said, my meat is to come, my food is to come to do the work of my Father, the will of my Father, and accomplish His work. What was His work? His work was that he was to come and redeem a people for the glory of God. Jesus, the creator of space and time, collapses time by saying the sower and the reaper are rejoicing together. Yes, even in the spiritual economy, there are both sowers and reapers. Through the collective effort in evangelism, is, though the collective effort of evangelism is not the main point of this text, I think that we can see this critical precept established here. Evangelism is dependent upon faith, and evangelism is a collective enterprise. Last week, we made reference to 1 Corinthians 3.9. Today, I'd like to read it. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. In addressing, if you're familiar with the church at Corinth, they were divided. There were factions in the church. One says, I follow this celebrity, and I follow this celebrity, and I have this gift, and you don't have much of a gift. And so there was this friction. Well, what we find out here, Paul uses the analogy of sowing and reaping and building to show the cooperative nature of evangelism in the spiritual realm. There are cooperative roles within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, one in essence, and yet they have different roles within the Trinitarian economy. God has ordained that it is not through the individual, but through the union of believers with Christ and the believers' union with each other that His purposes will be accomplished. I'll have to admit, in America, has been is known for its individualism, its rugged individualism, but we don't find that in Scripture. Throughout, we have a Trinitarian God, we have a church, many individuals, but only one body baptized into one body. That is God's ordained way of working. The precept that evangelism. Oh, then Paul goes on and uses. Uh, this example, he says, uh, he said he had planted, Paul had planted, Apollos watered, but it is God that brings the increase. Pointing to building, he said, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I have laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. Very rare, very rare, I would think, especially today, probably more than rare, that a single individual would build even the smallest of buildings. I'm talking about laying the foundation, digging the footings, framing it up, trimming it out, doing the electrical, doing the plumbing, heating and air, doing the whole thing, roof, the whole nine yards. Uh, it's a team effort. Uh, as a project manager, that was I was like the coach. And I would schedule and I'd bring people in and make sure the conditions were right. But you could see that when everybody worked together, and sometimes they didn't, you'd see frictions between subcontractors. You'd see how progress slowed down. It's a, co uh, a collaborative work. <clears throat> 
This precept that evangelism is a collective effort has practical implications. We assume, we assume, I assume, a terrible burden for myself or ourselves when we try to accomplish individually what was intended for the church collectively. This is an unrealistic, unrealistic expectation because the focus is on a powerless source. When I feel that it's my responsibility and my ability to do it myself, I set myself up for failure because that's not the way God ordained it to be. The focus is on ourselves and usually includes dependence on the quality of our lives or some evangelistic technique. Do you know what I mean by the quality of our lives? I failed in this endeavor because I wasn't loving enough. I failed in this endeavor because I was too abrupt or I wasn't clever enough. I wasn't persuasive enough. And so we have to realize by faith that there are those who have planted. Maybe our job is to water or it might be to bring the harvest. In Samaria, Jesus was ushering in the eschatological harvest of the nations. And though the disciples in the moment, didn't fully grasp the new reality. Later, as illustrated in John's inclusion of this event in his gospel, the disciples saw by faith Jesus claimed that the fields were white unto harvest. Peter really experienced it, right? And when he was preaching in the first couple of chapters of Acts where 4,000 people were saved in a day by hearing the word of God. Verse 39 picks up with two more ideas. Proof that the fields are ready to harvest is in the fruit of the harvest. You can, you can see it. Proof that belief or faith is not dependent on physical seeing. And I'd like for us, and I think that this is the heart, really the heart of why this is included in the text. Many, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed. In him, because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many, emphasize that, the fields are white, they're ready unto harvest. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed, mark this, is the Savior of the world. Looking at verse 39, let me highlight again the word many. The text could have simply read, the Samaritans from that town believed. But it would have lost the connection with verse 35 when Jesus said, Look, I tell you, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, before, uh, we have wheat here, and uh, I always like this time of year when the, you can see the wheat is grown and it goes from green to a kind of a brown goldish look. And on some occasions when the sun is just right and it's glistening upon those shiny little kernels, husks, it looks white. It's bright. It glows. Um, and, it, and so this is what he's re referencing the readiness to be harvest. Finally, in our theme from verse John 20, we are to our theme, John 20, 21. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The theme is believing with all of the consequences of having life in his name. All right, so let's pick up in verse 43. Here, the story shifts geographically, and it shifts ethnically. After two days, he departed for Galilee. We might again point to the fact that these two, in these two days, many believed. For Jesus himself had testified, and here's a verse that uh, really seems to be somewhat out of place. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. 
As I pondered this and couldn't figure it out for myself, I turned to the commentators and I found that there's at least 10 different suggestions. But I like it when a commentator or they come to agreement and say, this is probably what it means. And I think it fits. The idea and, and the reason it's a dilemma and the question is why it's here is in the next verse. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. See if I can summarize the next, whoops, the next few pages, because we're running out of time. Jesus in chapter 2 in Jerusalem, had done many signs. They're not recorded. And it says there, but many believed in him, but he did not give them himself to them, for he knew what was in them. These same observers in Jerusalem had gone home. And now Jesus has come through Samaria, the, the, the area of the Gentiles, back into the arena of the Jews in Galilee. And they welcome him. Now the question is, what is the basis of their reception and their welcoming him? Remember, if I can tie this together. Remember, the Samaritans said, as their final testimony, we believe this is the Savior of the world. It's possible... And most likely and most probable, if we continue through the book of John, we're going to see that these people who received him, received him not as the Savior of the world, but a worker of miracles. Their name for him might have been the miracle man, or it might be in biblical language, he did signs and wonders. This is wonder man. But what they did not acknowledge, and at least in this text, is this is the Savior of the world. You see the distinction? There are those, and I, I can give you examples. Uh, when Jesus, later in chapter 6, when Jesus has fed the 5,000, he crosses over Galilee, the people hear about it, who had been fed, they walk around or they get there somehow, and they come up to Jesus and said, ask him, how did you get here? And here's his statement to them. He said, you didn't seek me, because you saw the signs. The signs are for what? That you might believe that I'm the Christ, that I am the Son of God. He said, what you sought me for is bread. And then he goes on to talk about physical bread versus spiritual bread. He talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He makes that transition again. So there's a possibility of seeking Jesus as a wonder man, as a miracle man, as opposed to seeing him for the real reason that he came into the world. Now, we've read that he gave signs. These signs are recorded. Why? That we might, that we might believe. But the signs are not dependent, or, or the, the believing is not dependent upon the signs. We can see a sign, we can see a miracle, or people can see a sign in a miracle, and yet not believe in the one who performed the miracle. You may think of an example. Lazarus was raised from the dead. What greater miracle could be done than to raise someone from the dead? And then shortly after that, the Jews come together. They're distraught and they say, we've got to do something. If we don't stop this, everybody is going to believe in Jesus. They didn't deny that Lazarus, they didn't deny the miracle, they understood the miracle. So what did they do? They plotted to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. In chapter 4 of Acts, you remember Peter, Peter and John, they go up to the temple and they find a man that's lame. And he asked them for help and they said, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give to you. And they said, rise in the name of Jesus. They're drugged before the council. The man jumps up and down and there's a big stir in the city and he gets back to the leaders and, and last thing they want is a stir in the city. And so they bring him in. They bring in uh, John and Peter and they threaten them. And it's ironic. What they say is this. We cannot deny 
that a miracle has been done. What are we going to do about it? Because if we don't do something, everybody is going to believe in Jesus. So there's two kinds of believing. There's a believing by sight, that which you cannot deny. But then there's a believing of the heart where the Holy Spirit has worked. It's called the new birth. And it's seeing with spiritual eyes everything that Jesus said that Jesus is, everything he says he is, and that he has done everything that he, has, he said he has done. He's the son of the living God. He came to bear our sins. He lived a righteous life and he imputes that righteousness. That's seeing these miracles with spiritual eyes of the new birth. Finally, so we have this man who comes to Jesus and he says, I've heard that you're here. Uh, the stories about you are abundant. I have a son who's sick and he's, he's at the point of death. And Jesus said, you seek a sign. It's almost a criticism. And the man says, my, but my son, come to my house. My son is dying. And Jesus simply paraphrased. Jesus said, he's okay. He's going to be healed. And it says the man believed him. And he turned and he went to his home. And on his way to his home, uh, the servants of the house came to him. And they said, your son's okay. And the man asked, when did it happen? What time of day did it happen? And they told him, and it was the exact same time that Jesus had said, your son is okay. The point being, Jesus didn't do a miracle in Samaria, and the people believed. Many people believed. They believed his word. And here this man Eventually, he had heard the stories. He was looking for something. I, I don't know his expectations. Was, but he was working out of a sense of desperation. But he came to the right source, and Jesus said, Your son is healed. And he believed him. And it says that when he went home, he, says it again, he and his whole household believed. And they believed based not on what they saw, but based on the fact that Christ said, I don't have to go, I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that, go, your son has been healed. I hope this morning that is, is that we go, when we think of evangelism, and we think of God's power to save, that we see through the eyes of faith, that we believe that God's at work, that Christ is building his church. He's gathering people in. Uh, yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful to see people come through the door week after week and cry out, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And you simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in spite of the fact that we don't see that, we shouldn't be discouraged. We should be faithful in what God has given us to do. We should be faithful in coming together each Sunday morning, hearing the word preached, worshiping the God who enacted and performed the stories that we're reading about here. These are real. This really happened. There's, uh, I think I counted 17, 18 of us here. Jesus met with us this morning. He met with one woman at the well. So it's not the numbers. It's not what we can see, but it's based on the promises of God. Our gracious God and Father, we might say with the man, <coughs> son, <coughs> I I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that, Father, that we might be more diligent in seeking the ordinary means of grace. Father, that we might understand that there's a changing power in the Word of God and that we might seek it out for ourselves. That we would not be spoon-fed Christians, but, Father, we would be those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that we would be those who believe that you exist and that, we are, that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. May the testimony of each individual be, I sought him, and I found him, and I found him to be everything that he said he was. We pray all of this, Lord, to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, take your hymn books now, and we'll conclude our time of worship together with 301, Join All the Glorious Names.
join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew that angels ever bore. All are too poor to speak his worth, too poor to set my Savior forth. Great prophet of my God, my tongue would bless thy name. By thee the joyful news of our salvation came. The joyful news of sins forgiven, of hell subdued, and peace with him. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it bleeds before the throne. Thou art my counselor, my pattern, and my guide. And thou, my shepherd, art, oh, keep me near thy side. Nor let my feet e'er turn astray to wander in the crooked way. My Savior and my Lord, my Conqueror and my King, the scepter and thy sword, thy reigning grace, I sing. Thine is the power, behold, I sin. Now hear this benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, all of ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.